Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about how the COVID-19 models and how they're not they're neither right nor wrong. They're just less uncertain right now, and that explains a lot of the changes that you've seen right now in the coverage regarding these models. My second column covered how the coronavirus bursts our illusions of control as a society. And then finally, in the newsletter, I wrote about why the news media is losing respect in the public at large and in the process showing that it has a real contempt for the public that it is reporting for. This actually has a phenomenon. It's called elite panic. A link to a real good piece in there in Commentary Magazine. And so you should go and check both of those out. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way for me to get my columns and analysis to you. So if you like that and you like what you hear here, um, just make sure to, so, to go and subscribe and review this podcast as well. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help re- listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm. So, And I look forward to he- hearing from you guys in those reviews. This week's show, we're going to be covering the continuing impacts of the coronavirus. This seems like a continuing theme, but, you know, that's everything that there is right now. It impacts every last single story in the world right now. We are finally leaving the hardest two weeks, as the Trump administration called them, the hardest two weeks of the coronavirus. And it looks like, generally speaking, across the nation, that the curve is beginning to flatten, at least nationally. And if you're looking at the U.S. national average, that is sort of an average of all 50 states. And so if you're looking at that, the curve is beginning to flatten and the deaths look like they may have already peaked on a national level. I'll talk to a few other places where that's not the case. And there's, you know, the complete opposite of that, where there's some states that hit the peak a while back and they're just waiting now. So, We're still going to see many more deaths and other cities and places like Detroit, Michigan, they still have a ways to go. But the country as a whole is beginning to move out of the worst part of the coronavirus. So this week on the show, we're going to talk through those top line numbers and also the economic impacts. Since those are the two biggest debates happening right now, we've started to see some protests start popping up. So... This is really impacting all politics. Right now, if you had to bet money, the 2020 election will be decided on what happens with this virus. I tend to think you're actually going to see a couple other storylines happen throughout the year, just because there's a chance that this, as a main storyline, wraps up and we see something else pop up. But for now, this is what's going to determine what happens in just about every last single industry and every last single thing for the rest of the year. So moving into those top-line numbers, we are headed as a country towards 1 million positive cases this week. Right now, we're sitting at around 750,000 positive cases, and so we're only 250,000 away, so we're heading in that direction. Even if the curve flattens and it starts dropping this week nationally, that will still add more to the positive case. So you will see us cross, if not this week, then next, the 1 million positive case mark. So 
we don't have 1 million active cases. This is an important distinction here. There's not a million people, either now or in the future, walking around with this actively as a disease, because you also have to deal with the fact that people have recovered from it. But as a talking point and as a media narrative, the fact that we're going to hit the million point, the million milestone here for cases will be a major talking point. And really, if you're thinking about it, if we're hitting a million positive cases, that should really throw China's numbers, you should just throw them in a garbage can. Because if we're hitting a million cases, then they should have even more because their population is much larger, the density of some of their cities is much larger, and we know just from the way that their their country and their cities are designed, that they would have had a much harder time keeping this thing in check. So if we've hit a million positive cases, then you know they hit this and then some, and their death count is probably much higher too. So that's the major talking point for this next week that you're going to see. You're going to see people talking about us hitting that million case mark. The other top-line numbers... We hit 3.8 million tests this week, which is just a fantastic number. We're going to hit 4 million. If not, this should come out. You'll listen to this on Monday. So we should have hit that either today on Monday or we're going to hit it Tuesday, one of those two. We're doing 150,000 averages tests a day right now, and those should be going up just to this past on Sunday and on the weekend. On Sunday, we did 167,000, so we're seeing this finally tick up again. And usually over the weekend, the numbers lag a bit. You usually see Friday, well, really Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, there's this lag where there's fewer cases that come out during that period of time. And then Tuesday through Friday, there's a high spike. This also happens with positive cases and other things. We don't really have an explanation for why that's the case, but it's it's happened enough weeks, more weeks than not, that you should expect that. So it wouldn't shock me if 167,000 is the low point, that we might actually hit 200,000 in, in a day at some point this week would just would just be phenomenal. That would be well beyond what we need to do on a daily basis to hit the metrics that we need to figure out exactly the full extent of this virus, especially because the real goal here is not just to find the sick cases, but you're trying to find those asymptomatic people, those people who can spread it and not know that they are, to no fault of their own. They're not sick, but they do have it and they can spread it. So those are the three, those are the two big numbers there. The the other piece of good news is that 3.1 million people tested negative. So the vast majority of people are testing negative, even though there are so many cases, but there are just so many positive cases. And out of that, right now, we sit at 35.8 thousand deaths. So closing in, getting closer and closer to 40,000, that means we're going to be within range of where the models are expecting, somewhere between 60 to 70,000 right now. That's where we're trending. If this is a one-wave event, if you see things spike again, where the states start reopening a little bit, that will change how we measure this dramatically, just because that could cause a second tick up. But for now, if this is just a one-wave event where this tails off, we should expect somewhere between sixty to 70,000 deaths overall. Because even as the curve flattens and drops and the deaths begin to drop, that there's still people dying every day. So... We're still in much better shape, though. It does not look like we're going to hit the worst-case scenarios or 
of going over 100,000 deaths or even the upper band estimates of closer to 250,000. So we are doing a great job. The range of where these models are predicting right now is much tighter. It's the 60 to 70,000 range. And so you're going to see this sort of narrow down a little bit more, I think, because a lot of states are going to start doubling down now and trying to get even more tests out the door. So those are the good things that are happening just across the country. New York is still the majority of all the numbers in the United States. It is astonishing just how much of the overall numbers that they happen to take up. They're still, by themselves, New York is almost a third of all active cases in the United States, all positive cases. You remember we saying we had almost 750,000 cases across the United States. Well, New York has 243, so that's almost a full third of all cases in the United States are in New York alone, and then the rest of the United States, and that's not counting New Jersey and Connecticut, which even add even more to the New York that area's numbers. So New York really is in a league all its own, and not in a good way. And they only have 24,000 people out of their 243 that have gotten a positive test. Only 24,000 fall into the category of recovered, which is they no longer have it and they can no longer spread it. They are over this disease. And even when you count in the people who have died in New York, that still means there's over 200,000 active cases in New York alone, meaning the capacity for them to spread it is still extremely high, just astronomically high. And so, and they've had almost 14,000 deaths too. And so they are also the majority, uh, they're not, well, they're, they're, they're number one in all categories when it comes to this stuff. So they are the reason that we've had some of these, these larger problems on a national level. And if you're looking at sort of the curve record, New York is that for the United States. And like I said, if you add in New Jersey and Connecticut, those numbers jump easily up to closer to 40-45% in just compared to the rest of the United States. I was glancing at New Jersey's numbers just to see where they were, and it was astonishing because they're almost at a one-to-one. For every one person that tests positive, they have another person testing negative, so it's just it's one-to-one. If you've got two people, you've got a 50-50 shot of getting this. And they had like 85,000 who were negative and 85,000 and change who were positive. It is really astonishing to see that in a state, to see it spread that prevalently just everywhere. And when you add to them the states of Michigan and Louisiana, you kind of have an idea of where all the hot spots are across the United States. Detroit, Michigan is really the hottest of the hot spots right now. That's where you they haven't really seen a peak yet, either in case or cases or deaths. And so um, you're going to see other states, the federal government, and others send them resources to try to cope with where they are right now because they are lagging behind. I believe early on, their governor, uh, Whitman, she said that she had sort of depended on the federal government to handle things for this state. If it wasn't her, it was a similar one. And so that state really was not prepared and not actively preparing like you see in some of these other states, red or blue. I mean, you can look at West, places like California, Oregon, Washington. A lot of those states had this happen to them early on, and they got their states in lockdown. They started getting people to shelter in place. 
And it is astonishing what they were able to accomplish in the short period of time, especially in a place like California. You compare, it really is worth on the backside of this, comparing what California did versus New York, because California has more cities, more large cities, more landmass, and more people than New York. The same goes for a state like Florida, actually, by the way. And they have done leagues better than what New York has done. And so there is going to be major studies on the backside of this, looking at what these other cities did and how they handled it and how New York did and how New York failed in just about every every way you can measure what they have done. And I think you're going to see some of that similar problems in, in Michigan. And so it's a little astonishing to me that um, she is now a big major star because she's mismanaged Michigan almost to the degree that Cuomo and de Blasio mismanaged New York and New York City. But because she's got a feud with Trump, that makes her just a hot commodity right now. So it's really bizarre on that front because Democrats are not flocking towards the competent people in their just on their roster. Place you know you have Gavin Newsom in, in California, who I would disagree with almost anything, but he has done a fantastic job in corralling this virus. It, there's just a league amount of different, a huge difference between the two. And then the one of the key points that happened, there was a flare-up among journalists and people on the right this week because you had the story of Florida reopening their beaches. And a lot of people treated this with a high level of disdain, and understandably so. We've seen, you saw those early spring break parties that caused a lot of the spread nationally. And now Florida's reopening those beaches. But it's really worth noting that a lot of that reaction is overblown, I think, because Florida has strict restrictions on when you can go to the beach, who can go to the beach, distancing, whole nine yards, masks, everything. There are heavy restrictions. And really, with some of the timing, it really ensures that only locals are going to be able to go. They're really trying to give locals a place to go, much like you're seeing in other places where they're keeping the parks open just to give people a place to go, to walk, to keep their head clear, that sort of thing. And so that on that part, it's it's fine to keep these places open. If it gets beyond that, and obviously if you start seeing a spread, then it'll be worth closing them down again. But for now, it looks like they're just keeping them open on the same basis that you're seeing a lot of these state and national parks stay open. But the flare-up over this was because the New York Times and other other New York and D.C.-centric news sources started blasting Florida for taking these actions. And what people began pointing out, understandably so, is that New York City never closed down the number one thing that has caused the spread of the virus in New York, and that is the subway system. The number of people who have gotten sick the number of workers who've gotten sick, the number of workers who have died as a part of the subway system in New York staying open this entire time is astronomical. And the masks as a mandatory requirement did not kick in until just this past weekend. That was when Cuomo and de Blasio started saying that it was a mandatory for you to wear these masks if you're going on a subway. And so New York has done nothing for their subway system, nothing for their subway workers, nothing overall. And just now you're beginning to see some of the people who represent these workers and these people starting to say, hey, you guys should take care of us better. You should start wiping down these things. And that's where New York is getting this spread because this is, if you get one, just a hand, one or two people who go here, they become super spreaders who move across the entire city. 
early on when this when this virus started coming out, and we were reading stories about out of North, out of South Korea, I should say, about how this disease spread. The Reuters had one report that was just fascinating. They talked about how South Korea had this disease beat. They knew all the people who had it when they came to the country and who all the people that they came into contact with. They did this for the first 30 people that they found. They had everything under control. And then it was the 31st, I believe it was, the 31st person refused to follow any of their demands, left the hospital, and ended up becoming a super spreader. And they, at the time, and this was back, I believe, in March, they believed they could trace like close to like 80-90% of all infections in the country in the country to this one person who refused to follow directions and you know went to a church went to a buffet and just spread this disease everywhere and that's just one person in a small country new york had that multiple times over in an entire transportation system that they've done very little do to do to combat and yet, the media people in these cities is blasting some of these other states, like Florida and some of these red states, for what they've done, when in reality, the reason that this has spread so prolifically, even across the country, is because New York has refused to take care of itself and its own business. I've lost count of the number of stories I've either heard anecdotally or read where people in Tennessee, people in Florida, can point to a person going to or coming from New York and bringing the disease from there and getting it from there and bringing it to these other states. New York did nothing to lock down the problem that was in front of them. And so that's why you saw this flare-up, because all these journalists and all these media organizations started attacking Florida for reopening the beaches, when everyone knows it's these places, it's, these, it's, it's this city, this one, and even these journalists who were there, who, when this first started happening as a story, were downplaying the coronavirus and saying that it was fine and people were overreacting. That all came out of New York. And so that is why you're seeing a growing level of anger towards Cuomo and de Blasio and the leadership of New York in particular, because a lot of people see this as they are being punished for what New York did. Now, whether or not that's true or not, we're going to see because this infection has spread to other places and people have correctly had to, you know, stay in and, and stay in under a mandatory lockdown. So you're going to start seeing things open up. And I think if you see more of these types of stories between just between national media and some of these states, where it's worse where these national media organizations are based, but not anywhere near as bad where other people are living, you're going to see a growing resentment between these two groups just grow. And I sort of hinted that in the newsletter this week, talking about the elite panic. Most of this country's national elites live in a very few select cities, places like New York, Washington, D.C., just on the coast. We joke about this in general, that you have your coastal elites. But in this case, it really is true because the journalists are the one reporting what is happening. If you've mostly been listening to local journalism and just your local news, you haven't caught in this because the people in your local news live there with you, so they know what you're going through. And so their level of panic is going to match more than likely what you, you are seeing. It's not going to match what's happening on a national level. Well, on a national level, generally whatever's happening in D.C. or New York 
they project onto the rest of us. And the resentment that that is going to start growing between them and everyone else is going to grow, especially, especially this next week. Because if you see states like Texas, Florida, and some other smaller ones reopen a little bit and nothing bad happens then there's going to be blowback to all these organizations who have covered this as a complete and total disaster, but have not covered New York in the same way. There's this interesting split in how they've covered it. If you look at their coverage of these red states, places like Florida, it's always a disaster. And what either Trump or the federal government or what these red state governors have done If you look at them covering what's happened in New York, on the other hand, they always cover this as a failure of just the federal government not doing enough, or New York was just caught with the worst of it, and it's just bad there because it's just bad there. They don't cover this as a failure explicitly of de Blasio and Cuomo. In fact, those two are beginning to get a lot of praise. Cuomo has got more blowback, but that's generally because he's just hated. Cuomo's got praise, even though he gets the exact same level of blame as de Blasio. So that's sort of where we are right now. You're going to see sort of these fissures begin to open up even more as people talk through and begin to realize maybe it's not as bad where they live, but it is in New York, and it is in some of these other major cities. And so you're going to see this sort of open up even more because if people can start going out and living their lives a little bit more normally, it's going to change the calculation for how people view the requests and the demands to reopen. Right now, these protests that you're seeing aren't that big. I'll talk a little bit more about that in the second segment. But they're going to grow, and the resentment is going to grow between these different areas. So should we actually reopen in stages like is being proposed by the Trump administration? I don't know right now. It's hard to tell. But I will say... It is good that we're allowing some states to do this first instead of doing this all at once. It is better for some states to step forward and take action so we can measure and see what their experience is to learn from that for everyone else. It is better to do this a little bit at a time rather than all at once. So these test runs are good, and we're going to learn a lot of them because you can still keep most everybody protected even while you have these test runs. And so if you start seeing more tests coming back positive because they're opening up, that will tell us a lot. If you see the opposite, that will also tell us a lot there. So the rest of the country may be be able to open up soon. I think you will not see a more extensive version of that until we get into May. But some of these early openings here, we're going to learn a lot from them. New York and New York City, they're a long way. They're just a long way from being able to do anything just due to the sheer levels of spread that have happened in that city. The rest of the country, we don't know. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about this in the economic segment coming up. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll get into that side of the discussion. And we're back talking about the economic impacts of the coronavirus. If the pain from the virus itself is beginning to fade away some as we've hit the, the curve here, we're flattening it a little bit, we're seeing deaths go down. If that pain is beginning to lessen after these two weeks, the economic pain is going to continue to ratchet up because things are still closed as if we're at a peak right now, and justifiably so. But the economic pain for this is going to grow each day as we get towards the the end of the month, as people get closer and closer. Because when you're talking about that end of the month, first of the month thing, that's when people have a lot of bills 
due, and if you've been off this entire month unable to make any sort of income, the only thing you've got between now and then is the stimulus check. And if you're by yourself, that's only $1,200. And if you were lucky enough to get in under the PPP Act, the Paycheck Protection Act, before it ran out of money, you may, may have been able to get some of that either as a business or as or as a part of the the part where if you're a 1099 or a gig employee, you can also get part of that money as well. So that's sort of where we are. You're going to see the economic pain continue to ratchet up just because that's where more pain is going to be felt. So as we get out of this two-week period of the virus being the, the hardest part, I really think you're going to see the next two weeks as we head towards the end of the month be the hardest part for the economy. You sort of had the hardest part for one, and now we're heading into the hardest part for another here. And we have already now 20-plus million people who have filed for unemployment benefits across the United States, which is just an astronomical amount. We're expecting millions more to join them at the end of this week on Thursday. So there's going to be a lot of people who are just out of work and need assistance. And that's that's just really where we are right now. There's no other way to cut this. This is, you're seeing an entire recessionary period where people get put out of a job. You're seeing what would take normally a year, year and a half to work through the system has been compressed down into three weeks here where if if this ends up being a recession, and we could see one of the starkest recessions in a quarter that we've ever seen, just with the sheer amount of unemployment and the the restriction and growth that you're going to see. And this really can't go on for much longer. There are early signs, very, very early signs, that we could be seeing the beginnings of what people call the retail apocalypse. And I've written about this, and I've talked about this, it's where you have all these various retail companies who are heavy on the debt side, where they have all these loans outstanding, and now all of a sudden, if they were trying to restructure these before, now they're stuck in this virus period where they had to close down, they're making absolutely no money, and payments on their loans are coming due. Uh, one of the companies that announced that this week it's likely going to file for bankruptcy is Neiman Marcus, a retail store in New York, Dallas, and elsewhere that's got several stores. They are heavy debt-laden. They are a store that, even without this, they could have probably filed for bankruptcy, but they were able to keep things afloat during this during the high points of the economy. And so they have a lot of debt, and they're very likely going to file for bankruptcy this week. You would call these types of companies companies low fruit, where they're really easy to pick off at the beginning of a recession or any kind of downturn. And this is a very sharp downturn. So these types of companies are the ones that get picked off first. Others that could join them, you're talking companies like Macy's, Nordstrom, and JCPenney. They also all have heavy debt loads. And before this, they were looking for ways to restructure their debt payments. They're now having to look for new financing and find new ways to pay for things. I know that they're also beginning to use their real estate as forms of collateral to back up the new loans that they're seeking. And so these types of re- retail companies are are really on the brink of going under. And if you start seeing a lot of these all cascaded once, that's where you start seeing the domino effect 
in the debt sector, where if a lot of these companies go under, it puts the pressure on banks with these other companies, and you start seeing a cascading effect. That's what happened in 2008 with the banks and the mortgage, uh, the mortgage dropout. So that is the real risk here. Where you could have a triggering event with the retail apocalypse. And some of these low-hanging fruit companies are really easy to pick off during these times. And so if they are able to avoid it, then you are more assured that other companies are going to make it on the backside of this too. So these are early signs that the risks of a further downturn, where we go from a pandemic recession, which is something that you can recover from, and then you go into a full-blown recession, and if not a full-blown recession, because you have all these companies going under, and you can't get people who are now unemployed back into an employment situation. So that is the risks. These are the red flags that are beginning to show up. There is a similar effect that's going that's taking place in the restaurant industry where a lot of these smaller places are trying to figure out how to stay afloat. You're going to see some larger chains probably start getting mentioned too just because even if you reopen the economy tomorrow and everyone can go out, chances are people would not immediately head back to a restaurant. Polling right now only shows that around 20% of people would immediately go back to their full activities if everything opened up tomorrow. That means 80% of people would not because everyone's sort of looking around and saying, okay, is it safe to go out? Is it safe to do X, Y, and Z now? And so even for these restaurants, even if things opened up immediately, they're still going to have to have some time here where they're allowed to ramp up again because their business dried up overnight and it was deemed unsafe, and so now they've got to rebuild that. So there's going to be a lot more that's going to happen to happen here. Uh, we're waiting for Congress to pass more money to go into the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. I mentioned that earlier. Previously, they had passed enough funding for $350 billion to go into the account for that. That ran dry last Thursday, so that only lasted a few weeks. They are trying to come to a larger number in order to refund it, but I have not seen any figures on that. Democrats have blocked that bill for weeks now. Uh, Mitch McConnell tried to just have a voice vote where they just refunded it. You snapped on a, under a voice vote, and Democrats have blocked that at every turn. They're trying to get a lot of other odds and ends plugged into this as well, but I don't believe they're going to get anything. The only thing that they've agreed to so far with Republicans and Democrats were some things that both sides wanted, which was $75 billion to pay for hospitals because without any of these elective procedures that people are are usually getting during this time. Hospitals aren't making as much money, and so it's harder to pay for all this treatment that they're handing out. And then you also have $25 billion allocated for expanded testing. So both, everyone generally agrees with that, and so that was an easy concession on both sides. Republicans were wanting something along those lines too, but Democrats are still pushing for stuff like payments to go into mail ballots and other things that are just not going to happen and so we're just waiting for Democrats to finally give up and give this comp this money to these companies because that is the easiest thing to do right now. It's just it's a bad look if Democrats keep blocking this money and more businesses start going under because they refuse to help fund this these things. And so that's where we are. I think it's going to pass probably sometime early this week. I expect it to be an early week thing, although 
could be talking next week about how it just passed over the weekend, just given how these things go. But once that passes, I think almost immediately you'll have to start see Congress talking about a phase five where we're talking about more relief going out. The big question here is, are you cutting more checks to individuals? Are you going to have to refund the PPP program again, Paycheck Protection Program? Uh, The longer we're closed, the more relief is going to be needed. I've said over and over again that Congress is going to have to pass more relief. They should have passed it to where they cut checks to everyone for three months. Because if you were trying to eyeball what the models were saying, it was going to take three months to get to the worst part of this. And Congress only passed enough for one when it came to individuals. And we're already having to go for another round for all these businesses on the Paycheck Protection Act. They will probably have to do it a third time. I fully fully expect for that fund to dry up again, and they'll have to do this again. So what they're doing for businesses, they should have also done for individuals. For whatever reason, they're still thinking in terms of a recessionary period where you're trying to help people during for a short period of time. That is not what is needed. You need people to be able to stay indoors for those three months. But whatever, that's just where we are. I, you may see something... Senator Hawley out of, I believe it's Missouri, has proposed funding up to 80% of people's paychecks who have lost their jobs. That may get some some dibbles on the voting front, but even if it is, it's already two months too late. It'd be a good idea if they did do it, just to cover another month or two, but it is already late at this point. So Congress is going to end up passing a lot more. I believe this is either going to be phase five or six after they get through this thing this week. So look for more to happen on that front. These protests that you're seeing are just a sign of growing unease. They're not very big right now. I was watching the local ones for Nashville, and I've seen some others for some other cities, even in Michigan. Those protests are not very big. I remember much larger protests, both for the Tea Party in Nashville. They had the corn, the uh, car horn honking protests for the the income income tax back, I believe it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, those were massive. And so these protests over this virus are very small. And it makes sense that they're small just because these are the people who, it's not that they're, they're not even arguing for the, for, for even the economy at this point. These are the people who are arguing that they don't believe that this virus is anything to be worried about. These are the kind of people who are mostly arguing this is a hoax. They're all wrong, and they should be ignored. I have a column coming out tomorrow comparing these kinds of people to the people on the people on the left who argue that 9-11 is an inside job. I met these type kinds of people in college. They would graffiti all of MTSU in chalk every night talking about how 9-11 was an inside job. They would send you off to YouTube videos to go watch to show you that, that it was all true. So really and truly, most of these people right now who are holding up all these signs about the virus being a hoax, Dr. Fauci is wrong, the models are wrong, these are all your cranks. And you expect to see them in any type of situation like this. Those protests will grow, however, if the economic pain continues to grow, and it is going to continue to grow. And so as you get closer to the end of this month, and it looks like the economy is not going to recover anywhere to the degree that it is, and Congress is stalled out on what to do, you're going to see more protests just because people are going to demand action from Congress. And they're rightly going to have to demand that because they were told to stay home, they did, and Congress didn't cover them appropriately enough. That's not something that can be allowed to be done. If you want, if Congress and the national government and the state governments 
wanted people to stay home, they should have covered them during that period of time. That's just the politics of it. That's the economics of it. And if you're not going to do that, then people are going to, po- to protest against that. That's going to be the populist backlash against that. And I think that applies left or right. It's just, it's not even a liberal or conservative deal. It's you're dealing with a pandemic. There are very clear parameters for what you're trying to meet. And if you're failing to hit those, you're going to hit that backlash. So there are politics in play here, you know, dealing with about whether or not Donald Trump did a good job dealing with this, whether or not Joe Biden would do better. That's sort of the the overarching presidential view. But just on the day-to-day basics where people are trying to survive, that's not really a red or blue thing. That is a, here are some clear policies that can deal with it, and you're either enacting them and funding them, or you're not. So does next week look for more unemployment figures to come out this week? We saw only, and I say this, only five, five and a half million people file for unemployment. That was lower than what people thought or right along estimates for others. So that's a good sign because for the previous two weeks, we just blown those estimates out of the water. Um, so you're going to see more this week. It would be nice to see that under the 5 million mark, but we shall see. The next phase of the discussions will probably start happening once this congressional thing passes. And as I said at the beginning, as this virus pain begins to fade a little bit, the economic pain is going to pick up every day and every week from now until the end of the month. And I believe this next week is the first one where you're really going to see the economic pain begin to eclipse what people are talking about on the virus side of the equation. And people's minds are going to begin to think, okay, we really do need to start doing more here. It may not be reflected in the polls, but you're going polls are kind of a lagging indicator on that front. You'll start seeing people react to that more, and then a little bit later the polls will begin to catch up to where things are in the country. So that's where we are. I think that you're going to see all of the economic pain start growing more this week. You're going to see that unease starting to grow in and set in more. That's the bad news. The good news, as we wrap up here, is that you know really we really are beginning to turn a corner on this virus. That is the good news. You're starting to see a flattening of the curve. And so there is daylight at the end of the tunnel, even if it is just this first wave here. The goal is to sort of get out of this first wave and reassess on the backside, and we can plan accordingly for any second or third wave. We're not really sure if that'll happen, but odds are right now that it will. So that is the good news. We are turning the corner. We have the tool set to, com- to deal with future waves, and things are looking up. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday, so make sure to sign up for that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews. Those always help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.